morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. I know that some of you use devices um, to read the scripture. And thank you. Um, <laughs> if if you're looking for which version I'm using, I'm in the New King James Version. When teaching from the book of Esther was discussed, it was decided that we would go about it by doing some character studies in the book and picked four people that we would do uh, short character studies on and decided to do two character studies a week. So I'm doing two this week, and David Burson is doing two next week. Um, interestingly enough, one of the character studies that I have been assigned to is uh, someone who is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Um, as Trent mentioned last week, Esther is one of the two books in the Bible where God is never mentioned by name. And never he is present on every page, but he's never openly spoken of. There's two schools of thought about why he is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. Um, some hold that the oppor- when the opportunity came for the Jews who had been exiled into Babylon to return to the land of promise, the ones who did not return were out of God's will, and they basically had forgotten God, and so he's not mentioned in this place where where they're not in the land. And so they, those people who believe that way, uh, many of them believe that um, this book is included in the canon of Scripture to show that although these Jews were out of God's will, and though, although they had forgotten him, he had not forgotten them and his promises to Israel, uh, and that God was still in control of events. Others hold that although God is not mentioned specifically in the book, for whatever reason, there are obvious indications that these Jews had not forgotten. For instance, Mordecai, and Mordecai tells Esther, perhaps this situation is exactly why you were brought to the position you have. And the obvious question would be, you were brought to this, this is why you're here? Who came up with that idea? And the answer would have to be the Lord God. Also, Mordecai told Esther that even if you don't participate in trying to save the Jews, the Jews will be rescued by some other means, showing that Mordecai had faith that God was going to keep his promises to Israel. Well, the obvious thing there, again, would be God is in control. Which of those two suggestions is correct? I don't know. And we're not going to try to figure it out this morning. Um, God is one of the two characters that I'm looking at this morning. The other is Haman, who is the villain of the story. Since he is mentioned prominently, prominently in the story, I'm going to start with him. We'll see what we can determine about his character. According to chapter 3, verse 1, Haman is an Agagite. If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 15, when God sent Saul to destroy one of the cities of the Amalekites, remember Saul saved Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Amalekite, the Amalekite king was called Agag, it's not his name, it's his title, a title of royalty, kind of like Pharaoh 
there were various pharaohs of different names, but they were called pharaoh frequently, or pharaoh Nico, pharaoh uh, Amenhotep or something. Um, so Haman is an Agagite. He is descended from Amalekite royalty. The Amalekites were one of several tribes, just like Israel, the, the different tribes of Israel were the sons of Jacob, or the sons of Israel. Israel is another name for Jacob. Same way, the Amalekites are one of the tribes of Edom. Edom is another name for Esau. The Amalekites, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, shortly after they came out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked Israel. And the two nations were at war with each other always for for after that happened. Um, that may explain in part why Haman wanted to wipe out all the Jews when he learned that the man who would not bow to him was a Jew. What else do we know of him? Chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to him, to Haman, for the king had commanded, for so the king had commanded concerning him. Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Haman accepted their homage, worship, obeisance, whatever you want to call it. Haman accepted this from people. The proud man. Verse 4, the, the, other, the king's servants noticed what was going on with, with Mordecai, that he would not bow. And it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them because they, they were going to him and saying, why aren't you bowing like you're supposed to? You don't bow to this guy like you ought. And he told them, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to do that. Now, it happened when they spoke to him daily and would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So he's a proud man. He's also a man who listens to gossip, tattling. So these people come and tattle to him, and he takes notice. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. He's a wrathful person who is easily angered, which leads to he is also a vengeful person. Verse 6, he determined to lay hands on Mordecai, not on Mordecai alone, though, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Think back to Lamech in the book of Genesis, uh, who said, well, if if uh, there's going to be revenge against anyone who kills Cain, well, for me, it's going to go beyond that. Anybody who hurts me is going to die. Anybody who gives me a hassle is going to die. I've killed people for less than that, what he says. It's not sufficient just to get even. I have to come out way up on top. And that's the way Haman feels, very vengeful. For seven, they cast purr that is, the lot before Haman, to determine the day and month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar. The idea here is he is a very superstitious person. And he believes in finding lucky days. What's going to be the luckiest day that I'm most likely to succeed in my goal, my goal of wiping out all of Israel? So they cast lots to try to figure out what's going to be not that they cast lots every day to figure out which day it was going to be, but they sat down and they went through all the days of the month and 
all the months of the year, casting lots for each of those dates to see which one is going to be the best chance of success. 8 and 9, Haman said to a king of Hazarus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it please the king, let a decree be written that they should be destroyed. So he's a bit conniving and deceitful. He's telling things that are not true and has figured out a way just in case King Ahasuerus is not immediately on board with this. What I need to do here is I'll offer him money. I'm going to contribute money into the king's coffers if, you, if you'll allow this to happen. I know it's going to cost you something to lose all these taxpayers, but I'll pay money in. So he's conniving and deceitful. 315. After the message went out that these were all that the Jews were all to be killed, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. He was also self-indulgent. We're going to sit down. We're going to eat and drink, be merry, even though we've just condemned all these people to death. Chapter 5, verse 9. When he's invited to the, uh, the banquet with Queen Esther and the king, he is a very, very happy man. He goes to the one. He's invited to the second one. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. That's in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. When he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand nor tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Shortly after that, well, he comes out joyful, and all of a sudden, everything just changes in his, in his attitude. He's kind of mercurial in his temperament, switches moods very easily. He's a boastful man. In verse 10, he went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of all his great riches, of the multitude of his children, all the ways in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides that, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. He's also a self-pitying whiner because you get to the next verse. After he's done all this boasting, he says, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. 6, chapter 6, verse 6. This is when the king had woken up at night. Haman came in and asked him, what shall be done? Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? So he's self-absorbed, he's self-centered, he's self-confident, and ultimately, he self-deluded because it was not him. Chapter 6, verse 12, after Haman had to take Mordecai out and do all of the things that he wanted done to him, he had to do all of those things for Mordecai. Afterward, Mordecai went back. Whoops, sorry. Chapter 6, verse 12. Ah, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hastened back to his house mourning and with his head cut. He was capable of being humiliated, but he was not capable of humility. There's a difference. Chapter 7, verse 7, you find out he's a bit cowardly as well. When, when he is discovered and pointed out to the king by Esther, when his, his heart is laid open by Queen Esther to the king, 
king goes out angry, and Haman is cowering before Queen Esther and begging for his life. Ultimately, he never gave a thought to the Lord, the God of Israel, only to his own selfish desires and interests. Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. What do we see about God's character from the book? Primarily, God keeps his... You think back to God's not seen in this book. I mean, God is not mentioned in this book. But we can see from this book that God keeps his word that he has given elsewhere. Genesis 12, 3, God spoke to Abraham, and he said, Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whomever curses you, I will curse. See that taking place in this book. Haman is going against the sons of Abraham, and it costs him. In Exodus chapter 17, we'll read some excerpts from that. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. They had a battle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Further on, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God didn't forget it. 1 Samuel 15, 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out up from Egypt. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. These are things that God had said. And God's word does not return to him void. He does not forget to keep his promises. You see that happening in this book. Pride went before destruction, haughty spirit before a fall. Another thing about God's character, same thing about God's character, but he opposes the proud. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God opposes the proud. Another thing that we can see about God, God is always in control. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar, after he had been humbled, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to. See that happening in the book of Esther, that God is always in control. In Esther chapter 2, verse 21, Mordecai overhears, Two guys that work for the king talking about doing harm to the king. Who made sure that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time to hear this conversation? God did. In 3.7, when they're casting lots to determine the date, what's going to be the lucky day? Who was really in charge of what date was selected? Is it luck, fates, the gods of Babylon, the gods of Medo-Persia? No. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap 
but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. God is in control, even in how the dice come out. Esther 4.14, who arranged for Esther to be in the kingdom for such a time as this? The Lord did. Esther chapter 6, verse 1, that night the king could not sleep, so it was so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Who kept the king awake? Who made the choice of what would be read that night? Verse 3, they run across this situation that, that when they're reading, talking about Mordecai saving the king's life, revealing that plot. And who was in control of what they read that night? God was. Who ensured that Mordecai was not honored previously? Somehow it fell through the cracks, right? Mordecai should have been honored for what he had done, but it fell through the cracks. got overlooked until tonight. And tonight it comes up. Then Haman walks in just after they've read about this. Who timed that so that Haman would walk in right at the right moment to suddenly get asked, what should I do to somebody I want? What can we learn from looking at these characters? Number one, God always keeps his word. We typically think of it, at least I do, I don't know about you guys, I typically think of the fact that God keeps his promises to those who trust him. Is that true? Yes. Guess what? God also keeps his promises to those who don't trust him. Or another way to look at it is God keeps his promises to one and his threats to the other. Um, God blesses those who trust him and curses those who do not. Both James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 6 say, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God always keeps his word on both counts. said that Haman was capable of being humiliated but incapable of learning humility. What's the difference between being humiliated and being humble? Humiliation is imposed on you from the outside, painful jab at your pride. Something is being forced on you to see that your pride didn't avail you like you thought. It was inaccurate, false. Humility is an inner attitude. It's been described by some as not that you think less of yourself, but that you think of yourself less. There's probably something to that. But in thinking about this message particularly, started thinking that humility is always appropriate before God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Perhaps it's easier to think of it in that way, that, all right, I can't compare myself to God and, and come out feeling proud. It's harder to do when you're, when you're thinking about other people, you know, and think of things that I might be able to do better than you can, or I think you're smarter than somebody else, better than somebody else, whatever. It may be true that we're better in some things. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 just a moment. And I think it would help with humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 asks a question. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory, boast, as if you had not received it? Why do you brag why are you proud of what you are, what you have, or the fact that you are better than somebody else at some particular thing? When I was in choir in college, the choir director used to bring this up frequently. 
say, you may be proud of the fact that you're in the choir. You can sing or whatever. But somebody else who's sitting next to you who can't sing, can't carry a tune in a bucket with a lid, God gave you a gift. You didn't give it to yourself. You have nothing to be proud of. Pride is removed when we acknowledge in our hearts to God, to ourselves, and to others that whatever I have is a gift from God. Whether it's a skill, talent, intelligence, possessions, not my doing, a gift from God. That recognition that everything that I have that's worth having is a gift from God to put me in right relationship with him and in a right relationship with other people around me. Because I'm not comparing myself and thinking, I'm doing it right. I would not be comparing myself with others and thinking better. I've just received a gift. I've received grace from God. I should show grace for those around me. It might actually be used for his glory. Father, we come to you. We do acknowledge that everything that we have is worth having. It's a gift from you. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father of light. Lord, we ask that you would help us not to be proud, but to be grateful to you. In the name of Jesus.